This show is about your mental health. While it's supported by the pillars of positivity and hope, if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out for help. In many communities in both the United States and Canada, you can dial 211 to be connected to mental health and crisis services in your region. While it may seem like it at times, you are not alone. Pop quiz. What is the fattest organ in your body? It's not your liver or your heart. It's your brain. 60% fat. Next question. Serotonin, the neurotransmitter that is instrumental in your mental health and mood, is produced where? Not in the brain, but 90 to 95% produced in your gastrointestinal tract. In other words, you are, or rather, your mental health is what you eat right now on The Happy Molecule. Hi, Dr. Palmer. How are you? I am well. How are you? Thanks. I, I'm well. You know what? I, I was doing a little bit of reading and uh, and found out, you know what you're doing isn't so modern and, and newfangled right now. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. I went, I, I, I actually was really interested in the term you are what you eat, because I think it really applies here. And it was it was actually connected to our overall health and mental health in 1848 when it was it was first coined. Yeah, so, you know, the the, the concept of food affecting mental health and health in general actually certainly goes back to the 1800s. And actually the connection between diabetes and depression was well recognized in the 1800s. Um, So so why is this all of a sudden now new research? We've rediscovered it, why? It, I think, I think part of the reason that this is new and interesting to people is because we have, we now have triple epidemics going on throughout the world. We have an epidemic of obesity. We have another epidemic of prediabetes and diabetes. And oh, by the way, coincidentally, we also have another epidemic called mental health diagnoses. And, um, and they range, the whole range of the mental health spectrum is getting worse over the exact same time span that we have been seeing these epidemics of obesity and diabetes worsen. And what do I mean by that? I mean, depression is now the leading cause of disability um, in the world. Uh, But I mean, the rates of bipolar disorder have gone up among children and adolescents. They've gone up astronomically. Uh, The rates of autism have gone up. And most people don't think any of those things have anything to do with each other. Like those are different diagnoses with very different symptoms. They affect different types of people. And those things don't have anything to do with diet. But in fact, there's a lot of cutting edge research right now showing that dietary interventions can actually have an impact on all of those diagnoses that I just mentioned, where people are doing fecal microbial transplants in people with autism. Um, that's a dietary gut microbiome kind of intervention. Um, we're certainly looking at it for bipolar disorder and depression. We've had, we have a couple of randomized controlled trials showing that the Mediterranean diet can be effective in depression. I think one of the reasons this is such a hot area of interest 
and uh, is because our current treatments fail to work for far too many people. And, you know, let me just be clear. I am a psychiatrist. I'm at Harvard Medical School. I like my job. I respect my profession. Um, I am all for evidence-based treatments because they do work for some people. I'm also all about destigmatizing mental illness. And I'm also all about trying to get access to care for people, getting people access to medications. If, if that's a treatment that they wanna try, getting people access to psychotherapy, if that's the treatment they wanna try. But even with those treatments, depression is now the leading cause of disability. It's not because those people aren't getting treatment. It's because the treatments don't work. And we need new innovative ideas and so this idea is rooted in something that is true in terms of human physiology. And again, people have known this, not just since the 1800s, Hippocrates knew this. Hippocrates talked about, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And he actually <laughs> speculated that black bile might be the cause of depression. Now, for, for decades, we, for, for centuries, actually, we laughed at that. That's just crazy. But now we're coming, the cutting edge research now is the gut microbiome. And, and, and what was Hippocrates noticing about stool samples <laughs> that, 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 that seemed to be correlated with depression? Maybe he actually knew a hell of a lot more than we know today. <laughs> and he was just a brilliant genius who noticed subtle things like, this person's stool sample is different and, and they are having symptoms of depression and maybe there's something to that. I had no idea you were gonna lead our conversation into Hippocrates digging through poop, but so be it, here we are. Here we are in a load of whatever. Let's get right to the very basics here. Our body is, is literally an organic computer. It's completely interconnected. How does that interconnectivity work when it comes to food and, and nutrition and emotion and mood and, and, and dopamine? <laughs> <laughs> and can you answer that in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I, could, I could talk about that for weeks on end. That, that is precisely right in line with where I'm doing my research and what I'm pursuing. Um, and uh, the, the interconnection between food and diet and brain function, they are inseparable as far as I'm concerned. And it involves so many different things. So it involves hormones. So we all know about insulin. Insulin is related to the food we eat or the diet. It's, insulin is related somehow to type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes. Everybody knows that. But at the same time, we've also known for centuries that people who have diabetes are much more likely to experience mental disorders and vice versa. People who have mental disorders are much more likely to develop diabetes. So either one can start the process. So a lot of people can start off with, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in particular. People with those diagnoses are three to four times more likely than the general population to develop diabetes. 
Um, depression is a much more common illness. And we've known, again, for centuries about this connection between those. It turns out that insulin is not only about food and regulating blood sugar in our muscles and in our fat cells, but insulin actually plays a really critically important role in brain function. And, um, and we have increasing evidence that insulin resistance or signs of insulin resistance, in particular insulin resistance in the brain are highly correlated with all sorts of mental disorders. There was a really powerful study that just came out about a month ago that actually followed children from birth until 24 years old. And what they, and they like measured insulin levels and weight and all this kind of stuff for 24 years. They followed these kids for the first 24 years of their life. And what they found is that children starting at age nine, children who had high levels of insulin, which suggests insulin resistance were five times more likely to be at serious risk for developing a psychotic disorder. That's usually bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And they were actually three times more likely to already have been diagnosed with it by the time they got to 24. They were also more likely to develop clinical depression, but because of the sample size, it didn't reach statistical significance, but it was like over double the rate. And then people who gained a lot of weight, especially around the time of puberty. So weight gain, we usually think of that as a diet, like, oh, they're eating too much junk food. They're, they're not moving enough. They're, they're overeating, they're comfort eat, whatever. Well, however you wanna think about it, people who gained a lot of weight around the time of puberty were four times more likely to be clinically depressed when they turned 24. And, you know, a lot of times people think of that as societal, like stigma. Well, fat people are shamed. Fat people don't have an easy time dating or making friends. But actually, when you look at the cell biology of what we know about mental illness, and when you look at the cell biology of what we know about diabetes, there's tremendous overlap. And so it does not seem to be just psychological societal pressure. Um, or or so genetics. Or genetics. <clears throat> and so we know that hormones play a role. That's just one. And then we, I've, I've mentioned the gut microbiome. We know the gut microbiome um, and the gut and the brain communicate. And I usually, I usually say that the gut and the brain have three kind of different modalities of communicating with each other. And, and I, I put it into three different kind of buckets, but so there are nerves that actually directly connect the, the brain and the gut. The vagus nerve is the biggest of these. And we actually know a treatment for depression is vagal nerve stimulation for mm -hmm. some people. So again, here we go. What does the gut have to do with the brain and depression? It, that seems far-fetched. Yet we've got a vagal nerve stimulator is a treatment for depression. <laughs> And just because it's it's funny because in the last three episodes, I think we've we've mentioned the the vagal nervous system once in in each episode. It it is coming up more and more in our research. So please help me to to remind people what the vagus nerve is and and why stimulation of it makes a difference in depression. 
Well, so that second question is like the million dollar question and nobody knows the right answer for that or the, the, the definitive answer, at least not yet. But the vagus, so the vagus nerve is a huge nerve that connects the brain and the gut, essentially. It, the vagus nerve is largely, is usually thought of as part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So kind of the rest and digest kind of part of your nervous system. Um, and it's helping to control your gut. It, but it, again, it's so most people think of it as like a top down thing, like your brain is just telling your gut when it can rest and digest. And, and, you know, and if you've got the fight or flight system that it would be turned off, but it turns out that it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that, because your gut actually sends signals to the brain through the vagus nerve. And, um, and so your gut your, the primary role of your gut is to absorb nutrients. And, but those nutrients, like your body actually has this very sophisticated, elegant system of like planning for, oh, he, he just ate a donut. What are we going to do with that donut? Oh, he just ate some chicken. What are we going to do with that? And so before it even leaves your gut, your brain and the rest of your body, your liver, your, your other organs, your pancreas, they're all kind of preparing for what are we gonna do with these precious resources? Like he just ate some food. We've gotta use it strategically. Where in the body does this need to go? How should we use it? Should we use it for energy so he can run from an animal? Should we use it to build some muscle that needs to be built up more? Did he injure a knee? Does that need to be repaired? So our body and our brain have this highly sophisticated, coordinated way of allocating resources is the way I think about it. And um, so that's vagus nerve, but then the gut and the brain communicate in other ways too. So the cells lining your gut secrete all sorts of hormones and neuropeptides and all these other molecules that have all sorts of effects on our metabolism. And then finally, the gut microbiome, which is the big hot kind of, you know, hot area of research, buzzword, all of the little bacteria and viruses and fungi and everything else in our guts, they get first dibs at everything we eat. And then they can make neurotransmitters and hormones and all sorts of things that actually get absorbed into our bloodstream. So, you know, one thing that people often aren't aware of, everybody's heard of the, neuro, or most people have heard of the neurotransmitter serotonin, and that's supposed to be the happy hormone or the happy neurotransmitter, right? Because that's how anti, some antidepressants work. The happy it's molecule, happy. as it were. Yeah. There you go, the happy molecule. And well, it turns out that 90% of the serotonin in the human body is produced in the gut. Uh, it, it's not in the brain. It's in the gut. And when we take antidepressants, it may very well be that some of their antidepressant mechanisms have more to do with what they are doing to the gut and what they are doing to our metabolism than their direct effects on the brain serotonin system. Diabetic medication too. It does a number on my stomach. Is that... Is that also something you've been looking into? That, so yeah, no, the, um, serotonin is well known. So serotonin is a 
very common neurotransmitter among most living organisms. Um, it, it's a very well conserved kind of, they, they talk about it in conserved ancient molecule that has been around for a long time. It exists in worms and all sorts of other living organisms. And it is highly involved in the regulation of not mood, metabolism. It is, it is a primary regulator of metabolism. And that also interestingly happens to be, have an effect on our mood. One of the really wow, so interesting- So it's, it's doing double duty. Is It's probably doing like, you know, 10 to the 20th duty. <laughs> so, it's, so it's it trying to, it's trying to help us determine our mood and how fast we metabolize our food, how digest it and, and, and use it at the same time. Yes. Wow. And it, and it is it, so interestingly, it's also part of this really complicated network of, so serotonin is derived the end of the day from the starting molecule for most of us is protein and the specific part of protein is an amino acid called tryptophan. And so tryptophan is the start of serotonin, but serotonin actually gets turned into another molecule that a lot of people have heard of called melatonin. And, um, and so these things are all highly interconnected and regulated. Melatonin helps us sleep. Serotonin is supposed to make us happy, but wait, serotonin is also about metabolism and digestion and um, and that all comes from protein. So like if we don't eat protein, are we, what's gonna happen to our serotonin levels? What's gonna happen to our melatonin levels? Presumably they will go down, but you know, but as long as you have muscle on your body, your body can tap into that. It's not a good thing to have to eat away at your muscle to, to do that, but your body will eat away at your muscle if you're not eating protein and will use it to make new serotonin or other things. But um, so the relationships, if you do a deep dive into any one molecule, the relationships become inseparable and they become very complicated and very much intertwined with each other. So why then can't we just eat our way to a cure for depression? Forget the we, medication, forget I think the breathing. We can. Really? I think we can. So that's part of the research that I'm doing is, so there, um, there is a whole field in psychiatry called nutritional psychiatry. Um, some people are calling it that. Um, and and the, depending on the researchers you're talking with or the clinicians or the people using these interventions, people talk about it in very different ways. The most common way that people talk about it is eat a healthy diet, quote unquote, and that'll make you healthy, healthy body, healthy brain. I actually don't think of it that way. I think there's some truth to that. But I don't think of it that way because it's that's too simplistic, and um, and there are lots of things that are involved in metabolism, and as everyone knows, there are lots of things involved in mental health, and it's not just what you eat; it's also all of the psychological and social causes of um, stress, of mental illness. You've had a history of childhood abuse, 
Um, if you have a long, strong family history of mental illness, you're much more likely to develop it yourself. And that has nothing to do necessarily with what you personally are eating. So anybody who tries to suggest that if everybody eats a healthy diet, everybody will be fine, as far as I'm concerned, is very naive. And um, so I am not in that camp. Instead, I'm in a camp that says, because the, this because brain function is so intertwined with metabolism broadly, that, um, that if we can use dietary interventions to have profound effects on metabolism, that might be beneficial for some people. And so my kind of claim to fame is that I am using the ketogenic diet in particular as a treatment for serious mental illness. And this includes chronic depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Um, other researchers are looking at it for other uses. Now, most of your listeners have probably heard of the ketogenic diet because it's a popular craze diet right now, you know, keto for weight loss. But in fact, the ketogenic diet this year is about is uh, celebrating its 100th anniversary. It was developed actually in 1921 by a physician for the treatment of epilepsy. And the ketogenic diet is now an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy, meaning that we have uh, many randomized controlled trials uh, and uh, we actually have a Cochrane review, which is kind of the gold standard in the medical field all suggesting that the ketogenic diet, in fact, is a legitimate treatment for treatment-resistant epilepsy. And that means the really hard to treat epilepsy. These are people who have tried all sorts of medicines and nothing's working for them. And this diet can stop their seizures. It, not for everybody, but for some people. So let's talk about the keto diet. Yeah. Um, seafood. Uh, I'm just looking, I'm looking out to the side here. Low-carb vegetables. Uh, such as avocado, asparagus, kale. I don't like kale. Um, cheese. You don't have cheese. to eat kale. Okay. <laughs> cheese. <laughs> Isn't cheese tough on the stomach? For, for some people, if you're lactose intolerant or lactose yes, sensitive, yeah. then absolutely. And you don't have to eat that either. <laughs> so, so what are there, if I eat better, is am I going to make improvements to my depression immediately or at least in the near future? If I, I'm not even going to use the word better. Okay. I would say if you eat differently, you could have profound effects on mm. both your diabetes and your mood. Okay. So help me eat, you know, eat, better i'm going to use, use that term again so but, if you so, so what should i be eating if you wanted so i'm assuming your listeners know that you've got type 2 diabetes yes. as well is that okay well, no, they do i'm not yeah. declaring some <laughs> secret or <laughs> outing you on that no, you I'm know quite open or yeah. yeah so type 2 diabetes and depression so the first thing that i'm going to tell you is that um assuming that you're on medication for your type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. I'm going to really want you to work with a physician on this. And the reason is because um, 
the, the changes that I would recommend to you are actually going to result in your blood sugar coming down very rapidly and significantly. And for the most part, for diabetes, that's a great thing. But when you're on medication, it can the medications are still having their effect and you could you could actually become hypoglycemic to a really dangerous degree if you are not on top of this. So I would, for, so for somebody who is on prescription medicines for diabetes or for blood pressure, I usually want them to work with a physician to, to just make sure they're doing this safely because your meds will absolutely need to be adjusted very rapidly within the first, even sometimes first few days, sometimes wow. within the first month. But some physicians will actually lower your medication before you even start the dietary intervention to, to make sure that you're going to be safe. So I, with that caveat and warning, I would say someone like you would probably benefit dramatically by doing a low-carbohydrate diet. It could be a ketogenic diet. Not, so not all low-carbohydrate diets end up resulting in ketosis. Um, but the, the opposite is true. All ketogenic diets are low in carbohydrate. So, um, so I would want you to be on a low carb diet. And basically what that means is you have to cut out sugar, grains, um, any kind of bread, baked goods, starchy vegetables. So what you would be eating would be primarily, uh, protein sources. So that could be meat poultry, fish, um, pork, things like that. Um, you want to be eating low carbohydrate vegetables. So that's going to be broccoli, asparagus, cauliflower, salad, spinach, um, things like that. Not um, kale. Uh, you don't have to have kale. Good. You do not have to have kale. You, um, and, uh, and for any of these, you don't have to have it any one of those things. Uh, so there's, you can find a lot of variety, but you're going to be on a low carb diet. And as I said, for most people that will rapidly reduce your blood sugar. The first, I would warn you the first, I usually tell people it's, it's at least one week of hell. I would, so I would say you're going to go through one week of hell where you are not going to feel well. You are gonna feel hangry, you're gonna be craving carbohydrates, you're gonna be irritable, you're gonna, you might feel dizzy, okay. like headed. I, I think it's important to know why. What's happening? The, the, so the why in my stance, so some people in the keto community will say it's because you're not getting enough electrolytes. And so you do have to supplement initially with um, sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And it is true that electrolyte deficiencies can sometimes make people feel very ill. And so correcting that can be helpful. But I have found that that doesn't prevent this, this thing. So what, so the way that I look at it is what's happening is that, you know, by definition, you are insulin resistant. And what insulin resistance means is that the cells in your body, for the most part, are not getting enough fuel. So even though your blood sugar is high, it, that sugar cannot get into your cells. 
And so your cells are actually kind of semi-starving. And they are actually sending out distress signals to the rest of your body like, help, help. That promotes you to overeat. Your brain is getting this signal as well. And your brain is getting this signal, I'm starving, literally. Even though people might look at you and say, you're not starving, you, you could lose a little bit of weight, your cells are actually sending out the starving signal because that glucose can't get in them. And so when you, when you, when you first start this diet, it's like pulling the rug out from, from under these already struggling cells. These cells are already deprived of glucose and now you're not gonna eat any carbohydrates for the most part. Now your insulin is gonna plummet and the cells are still insulin resistant in those first few days. And, and now you're lowering your insulin levels, which is going to make them even more energy deprived. So you're going to feel like shit and is the way I put it. And Can I he let, say shit? Is shit okay? <laughs> yeah, shit's okay. Okay. I've been told. We were kind of talking about it with Hippocrates <laughs> earlier. Right. So. Hippocrates used to deal with it. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, so I would say you know, I usually prepare people for that and let people know you have to. We have to plan this. We have to start it at a right time for you. We have to figure out like when can you take a few days off from work or life responsibilities if needed. Like if you really feel terrible. How are we going to get you through that? And and let's make a plan to like it's some people call it keto flu. Let's plan. You're going to have the flu for you know five six days, and 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 when would be a good time for you to have the flu? I, I know it's never a good time, but mm -hmm. let's at least make sure we're not going to ruin your career or you know have you miss something really important in your life. Um, and you can get people through it. When you come out the other side, that's when the magic happens. When you come out the other side, people can start, will start saying often, I have never felt this good, or I can't remember feeling this good. Oh my God, what, what have you done? Like what's going on? Because my brain is firing on all cylinders now. I feel great. My mood is improving. I have so much more energy. I woke up refreshed for the first time in ages. Like usually I wake up and I'm still tired and, and I'm I, I, the snooze button if I can get away with it. I, I just force myself to get up, whatever, but I never feel good when I wake up. And for the first time in a long time, a lot of people start waking up saying, I feel great. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to get going with my day. I've got so much to do. And um, to me, that's, you know, the people who get that effect, not everybody does. It, and, it, and it becomes complicated. It, it, it becomes, you know, so why doesn't everybody? Well, sometimes it's because of the diet they're doing. They're not doing it right. Sometimes it's because of comorbid medical conditions that they're not managing appropriately. Like maybe you need to be coming off meds if this isn't working for you or if your blood sugar is going too low for you. So again, for people on prescription meds, highly recommend working with a physician working on this. Now, um, 
No, sorry. Uh, okay. Um, the uh, usually it's Canadians who are, are overly polite and keep saying sorry. So, <laughs> so we're Bostonians. Um, <laughs> so so uh, let's talk about depression. Then is is I mean is this the same thing? Low carb. So low carb ketogenic diets can help some people with depression. I will be the first to say it does not help everyone. Um, and I have certainly had, I've had patients who have had miracle cures. Um, and uh, I've, uh, I've, t I've heard from people around the world who were not, who were never my patients. And so they, they're, it, it's not just my bias. They and or their clinicians also noticed the same dramatic improvement. Um, researchers have noticed this effect when using the ketogenic or low carbohydrate diets in weight loss studies. A lot of weight loss studies have found that the people assigned to the ketogenic diet group have improvement in mood, energy, um, cognitive function. Um, when, they, when they're assigned to the low carbohydrate group compared to like a low fat group. So the people in the comparison group are also losing weight. So it's something more than just weight loss. Um, one of the powerful things about the ketogenic diet for people with insulin resistance is that ketone bodies and fatty acids are an alternate fuel source. They don't need insulin to get into cells. And that is what I think is, the re is part of the equation. It's not the whole equation, but it's part of the equation is that these ketone bodies and fatty acids can actually get into cells quite easily. So when your body, when these cells are actually starving or semi-starving in a way because of insulin resistance, this is a very quick, easy way to override that and, um, and get fuel into those cells. And when your cells are fully fueled, people feel better because their body is functioning running on all cylinders, so to speak. We're going to pause here. I wanted to know what five foods I need to get into my diet right now to make the biggest difference in my mood. I've been reading too much BuzzFeed, I guess. Next episode, Dr. Palmer's answer. And it wasn't what I thought it would be. Part two of You and Your Mental Health Are What You Eat. Next time on The Happy Molecule. I'm Kevin Frankish. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and also check out The Happy Molecule Extra at thehappymolecule.com. There you'll find a link to a video version of this episode. Be able to join the conversation about mental health, learn about our Facebook Live show, and get a preview of upcoming episodes. You can email us at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. I'm Erin Davis, wishing you good mental health.